if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love, help and support to get those needs met. And I think about it that way, all those years that I had been depressed, I thought of it as a personal failing, as a problem with me, either a problem in my biology or a failure in my character or that I was doing something wrong. And the main thing I would want to say to depressed and anxious people in the position that you're in is, your pain makes sense, right? You feel these ways for a reason. I want to hear what those reasons are. We'll figure them out together because usually when you're depressed, it's not clear to you what those causes are. And together we'll find solutions. That is author and journalist Johan Hari. And this is episode 268 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is episode 268 of the show with author and journalist Johan Hari. You can find him on Twitter at Johan Hari 101, J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I 101, and at his website, thelostconnections.com. More about Johan in a moment. If you're new to the show, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, what is this show? This show is a weekly conversation that you get to be a part of. That will hopefully help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. That's the show. Sometimes the chat will be with someone that you know. Sometimes it'll be with someone that you don't know. But I guarantee, no matter what, you'll hear something in uh, this episode today that will help you make this day a little bit better than yesterday. Just something that'll make you think about the world a little bit differently. That'll help you, I don't know, course correct a little bit. Make this day feel better. Be more productive. Be more authentic. Be more awesome. Be more good for those around you than the last. I am very happy you're here, and I did want to, right up front, did want to let you know that um, here at the show, we're gonna we're just going to run a little experiment with a bit of a change in format. Fear not, there will still be shows. <laughs> the team that I'm working with uh, to put this show out, the team at Acast, they're, they're the publishing platform that hosts my show, kind of like, they're like the Instagram of podcasts. So, you use Instagram. When you take a photo, people see the photo, but they look at the photo on Instagram. So the photo is yours, but it's hosted on Instagram. So this podcast is my podcast, but it's hosted on Acast. And me and the guys from Acast had a great lunch the other day at Shift Eatery, Surrey Hills in Sydney. Uh, always love to take some omnivores there. Um, in fact, Henrik, one of the <laughs> head honchos of Acast, uh, he's a bloke from Sweden and he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. He took a sip of his smoothie and like we're mid-chat, we're talking business stuff. He took a sip of his smoothie and he slaps his hand down on the table and he declared in his in his brilliant kind of Swedish Australian accent, that's hands down the best smoothie I've ever tasted. And we're like, oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> and I gotta back him up on that. They make a damned fine smoothie there at Shift. They do not mess around. Anyway, we had a good chat and um, talking with the team at Acast, uh, the guys wanted to see how things went here at the show by splitting the length of the podcast up a bit. Now, over the next few weeks, we're just gonna run a bit of a, a trial here. We're gonna bring you the same great conversations. You'll hear the same great content, full of the great wisdom, the great learning that, w- that we all learn from the guests that I have on the show. And they will be twice a week, maybe sometimes three, depending on how long we chat. 
in shorter parts. So you'll notice this episode is less than an hour. Don't worry. The, the chat went for a long time with Johan. The next part of this conversation will come along on Wednesday this week, and you can enjoy the rest of this chat there. Now, of course, this podcast, I make this podcast for you. So if you want more days between the shows, let me know. If you want less days between the shows, let me know. If you want them to come out on the same day, let me know. Uh, if you want me to also release the full uncut all-in-one take version so you can get it in one hit, let me know. This decision uh, is based on the fact that, look, we, we can see the numbers. We can see how people listen and how long people listen. And the numbers tell us that by splitting the show into smaller chunks, more people listen to more of the show. So for me, that's great because we all work, we all work hard to make sure that this show is the best it can be, and we'd all love to be sure that as many people as possible listen to as much of the show as possible. As possible. Um, now, of course, I know it's not you that stops listening ten minutes in. You wouldn't do that. I know you listen to the whole show, but some people just you know kind of they kind of tap out once their commute's over, and then they jump back in their car or whatever, and get back on the train, and oh, they start a new podcast, and they then listen to the last forty minutes of the show. So we're going to run the split format for a few weeks. Look at the listen time. Look at all the emails you send. Kind of have an assessment, and then um, we'll. You know, we'll just see what happens. But this is definitely a collaborative effort between you and I. Let me know what you think. Send Osher email at gmail.com is the best way to give me feedback. Maybe, you know, give it a week, give it a week or two, and then, you know, kind of let me know how it kind of fits in with today. Speaking of email, speaking of email, I am resurrecting the mailing list. Yes, indeed. If you would like to sign up for a weekly email letting you know all about who's on the show this week and whatever else is going on in my day, maybe the latest thing that I've put together in the pressure cooker, just jump online, osherginsberg.com, click on the email sign up there and boom, you're in. Uh, I won't spam you. I'll only fill your inbox with good stuff. To tease you about the email list, to give you some incentive about the email list, we got word this week that the Brisbane show, the sold out Brisbane show on the February the 8th might not be the last ever show I thought we might do a bit of a Farnham here. We might be doing a bit of a Farnham here. There looks to be three more shows on the horizon. If you're on the email list, I'll let you know where those shows are first. You'll be the first to know. So sign up to the email list, osherginsberg.com. That's where you can also sign up for the Facebook group. Always great to see people there. So let me check in with you. Uh, how's your week? I'll be checking in with you twice a week. There you go. <laughs> how's your week? What can I say? Uh, look, after a week of waking up too early, like, what's too early? Like 5 a.m. when my alarm's at 6.45, all right? Annoying. And then I was kind of lying there going, oh, can I get to sleep? Today, I opened my eyes early and just as I roll over to look over in dread at what time it was, the alarm went off. So 6.44 and 45 seconds, I'm going to take that as a win. I'm going to take that as a 100% victory. Um, so what did I do to bring that early wake up closer and closer to the, to the alarm time, which it did, it started to get closer and closer. Well, I started by taking a long, hard look at what it was that I might've been worrying about subconsciously. And it turned out three separate, fairly large projects that I needed to get to work on, but was stuck in freeze mode, uh, too intimidating. So I didn't start. And all I did was make it worse. <laughs> um, so I did what I know works, just walk through the flames and start working on them a little bit at a time. It might be confronting big stuff in this case, important things that I need to write, very important things I need to write. Um, prepping for the big show in Brisbane, trying to Marie Kondo the shit out of my office, stuff I was so confronted by, I was putting off, therefore just making it worse and therefore just running out of time and robbing myself of time before the deadline. And I just make some time to do a little bit of each thing every day. 
pull the guitar out of the case, run through the songs a few times, write a few paragraphs, commit to throwing away one bag of stuff that does not spark joy. A little bit every day. And you know what? I started to wake up later and later. It's not much, but I think it might be working. So, your turn. What are you putting off? What's the smallest thing you can do to move the needle on that thing or those things? Can you do a tiny little thing right now? A tiny, tiny little thing. Something that you can go to bed at night going, well, I did that. I hope you find that thing because it's well worth the effort. Well worth not living with those things hanging hanging over your head. I want to I want to say a big thank you this week to everybody that sent me a, a podsy picture. Um, a podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E. A podsy is a picture of what you're looking at as you're listening to this show. And it's really, really great. You're probably listening to this on a phone. So just take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Send us your email at gmail.com or tag me on Instagram. Great pictures came through this week. Some great views of the north end of the Gold Coast as Maddie drove her smoko truck around feeding the uh, hardworking people that are constructing construction. Ian Lau, who is in desperate need of a new fridge. Ian's icebox is on the fritz. Uh, it does not look good. It's gone to the big white goods store in the sky. Ian, I hope uh, I hope that your your new fridge is fantastic. And speaking of this guy, uh, Michael sent me some epic photos of the narrow neck mountain bike trails at Cecil Hills. I believe they're in the western bits of Sydney. Michael, uh, looking out over the Blue Mountains, just sitting on the edge of this precipice after riding his bicycle to the pinnacle of this hill or slash mountain. Uh, brilliant. So I'm so, so happy to be out in the bush with you, Michael. That's fantastic. Keep your collarbones attached to your body, please. Uh, you can send your pictures to uh, me on the email. Send us your email at gmail.com or just tag me in the Instagram. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. Johan Hari is the author of two New York Times best-selling books. His first book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, is currently being adapted into a major Hollywood feature film and into a non-fiction documentary. Uh, you can also uh, search for his TED Talk, Everything You Know About Addiction is Wrong, which is extraordinary extraordinary to uh, to watch. Uh, you can find that online or just click in the show notes. I'll put the link there. His most recent book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, really struck a chord with me because he describes that depression and anxiety are less about what's going on in your brain 
and more about what's going on in your environment. His hypothesis is that the causes of anxiety and depression, while in some parts are indeed genetic, environment and how we live go a long way to affecting us. To quote Johan directly, if you are depressed and anxious, you are not a machine with malfunctioning parts. You are a human being with unmet needs. The only real way out of our epidemic of despair is for all of us together to begin to meet those human needs for deep connection to the things that really matter in life. Over the course of his book, Johan identifies nine different causes of anxiety and depression and offers solutions to the issues that he talks about. But at the bare minimum, what he's found over his exhaustive research is stuff that it seems that we know it already, all right? We as humans, we feel we need to belong, need to feel that we're good at stuff. We need to feel valued by others. We need to feel secure about the future. And we need to feel that our life and our work has meaning. You take those five things away, it's pretty easy to see how you can slip off the edge of the world. The world. Now, just two quick things before we kick off. Um, Johan and I talk a lot about medication in this conversation. Do not stop or change your dose of medication without talking to your doctor. Don't do it. He and I discuss the helps and hindrances of medication. I disclose, as I have done with you many times, that meds saved my life. They helped me incredibly. They were extraordinarily useful in me feeling better until they were less useful. And then it was time to find a way to live without them. But that is my journey and my journey alone. You and I are different people. We are different upbringings, different trauma histories, different profiles, different weights, different probably sizes, sexes, everything. So what works for me will not work for you. What could work for you will not work for me. So that was a decision made by me and my doctors together over the course of many, many months. I'll say it again. Do not stop or change your dose of medication without talking to your doctor. Also, this conversation covers issues such as severe childhood trauma, including sexual assault and violence. If that's a trigger for you, when you hear Johan say the words, um, oh, that's right, he says, this is tough for me to talk about, but I've been trying to do it more in interviews. When you hear him say that, just skip forward about 10 minutes. You should emerge okay on the other side. I cannot thank Johan enough for being on the show. His new book, Lost Connections, is out now in Australia in paperback. I cannot recommend it enough. It's an extraordinary game changer. Learning about how our brains work, well, learning about how my brain worked and what was going on in my head helped me a lot in feeling better and helping me feel a lot more in control of my situation. And I, uh, I would recommend that you, you do the same thing. <laughs> um, uh, Johan and I did catch up over Skype and the internet being, it, being what it is in Australia. There's a few glitches here and there. Apologies. We can all fax Scott Morrison and ask him where our information superhighway went. But I hope glitches don't detract too much from your enjoyment of this superb chat. Enjoy part one of my conversation over Skype with Johan Hari. Is it insanely early where you are? No, not at all. It's eight o'clock. The bin men have just come, so that's nice. So I always think the fundamental division between human beings is not like left-wing people versus right-wing people or east versus west or any of that. It's morning people versus everyone else. My dad naturally wakes up <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning every fucking day, right? Wow. And I, naturally, I would wake up at like three in the afternoon, right? That's just my... Wow. So I'm constantly wow. in awe of people who... Yeah, I'm very suspicious of people who like to be awake <laughs> Well, I don't. It, it's funny you mention that actually, because I I used to work night shift for a long time. I did the overnight show on my radio station when I was in my twenties, and before that, I'd been a roadie for many years. So I worked nights for a long time, and it took about seven years to get out of that. 
you get into what's called a sleep hole, your body just has a very hard time adapting. None of this happened before the invention of the electric light bulb, mind you. So this is a very modern phenomenon. But now at the moment, because I I, uh, I, I don't know if, how much uh, you know about my journey, but um, I, I've currently been off meds for about uh, 14, 15 months. And part of that is monitoring my anxiety levels. And I put a little score out of five in my little book every morning. And I'm currently, I'm doing the uh, the old wakey up before the alarm, like 45 minutes before the alarm. It's like, this is, I wanted to be sleeping, <laughs> not being able to get back to sleep. So I, I managed to make it all the way to uh, probably like 6.44 this morning. And then the alarm went off at 6.45. But I'm taking that as a win, Johan. <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of what's going on. Well, I'm grateful that we're, we're talking today. Thanks for making this happen, mate. I'm, I'm really, really grateful. I loved your book, mate. Oh. I absolutely loved your book, Lost Connections. I, I found it really interesting. And when I when I speak to people and, you know, tell them I'm, I'm talking to you and just basically, you know, talk about the really simple premise which, well, I'll get you to explain because you people really get the premise. Basically, is what I'm saying. But I'll get you to explain the premise a little, uh, you know, because you've obviously done it many times. You you quite powerfully compare anxiety and depression to nausea. Would you be so kind as to just kind of walk everyone through that for me, please? Yeah, I'm just. Um, I should just apologise to your viewers and listeners because I've got a bit of a cold. So. I've had enough lemsip to kill a whole fucking field of cows at the moment. So if I seem slightly out there, I'm normally more articulate. I also feel it's unfair that there's this contrast between you and this beautiful, like, Australian white light. And I'm in this, like, grim, yellow, British winter where we're just having massive snow. And the contrast between your, like, perfect cheekbones and my... I once had... Uh, I feel like the intercutting between us is not fair. I once got uh, really bad food poisoning. That, by the way, you're not drinking your own piss, are you? That literally is what that thing that you just had looks like. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm drinking a, um, what's in here? Oh, this is um, just a little mixture of something that I drink in the morning. It's like apple cider vinegar and, and water. You realise it looks uncannily like you're drinking this, don't you? Like- I believe, Johan, I've been told that drinking your own wee is something that, you know, some people I- do. Um, and when they're not lost at sea um, as a therapeutic thing, I'm personally not into it. But whatever, yeah. whatever floats your boat. Just, just to dispel just, your myths, no. it's it's actually quite a uncom. We had a forty-two degree day here yesterday, and it's now twenty-one. So it's literally half that, maybe less. I was just, the contrast between your two bones and mine. I was thinking that I once got such severe food poisoning that I literally could not eat for five weeks, and it was in the fourth week that my cheekbones briefly appeared from like beneath the sea of flesh on my face, and then the minute, literally on the second day, I started eating again. My cheekbones were gone, and I've never been seen since. So I feel the me. <laughs> anyway, so you were asking me to compare um, depression and nausea. Yeah, I mean, I think this sensation of how depression and anxiety feel, it was part of the mystery that made me write Lost Connections, right? Because I had these, there were this series of mysteries that were hanging over me, and I couldn't find the answers to in anything I was kind of coming across. So I was, I kind of realized, okay, you're going to have to face this and kind of go on a journey to try to understand it. So the first mystery is I'm 40 years old. I just turned 40 a couple of days ago. And every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in Britain, in Australia, across the Western world. Right? Actually, Australia is off the scale on this. And perhaps we can talk a bit about why. And I want to understand, well, why, right? Why is, why is this happening to us? Why are more and more of us finding it really hard to get through the day? Something must be going on. And the second mystery was a more personal one, which is, and go, really goes to your question, which is that when I was a teenager, 
I went to my doctor and I explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me, right? I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realize is really oversimplified. It's not that it has no truth in it, but it's oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel like this. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. It makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. What we need to do is just give you this drug. It was an antidepressant called Siroxat or Paxil. Um, and you're going to be fine. Right? So I started taking this drug and I felt really significantly better for a few months. And then this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor. My doctor gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, this feeling of pain came back. And I was in this cycle until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take. At the end of which, I still felt terrible. So I wanted to understand, like, not just why so many people feeling like this, but why was I feeling like this, right? So as you know, I went, I went on this big, long journey all over the world. I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and crucially what solves them. But also just people with really different perspectives from like an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelics to see if that would help. And I learned loads of things, but I guess the heart of, heart of what I learned is that there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are in our biology. Your genes make you more sensitive to these problems. And there are real changes in your brain, or it's not a serotonin lack. There are real changes in your brain that can make it harder to get out that happen when you become depressed. But most of the factors driving depression and anxiety up and up and up are factors in the way we're living. And once you understand that, it opens up a whole different way of thinking about it and a whole different set of solutions, ones that actually do work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But you're you're not just you're not just making this claim out of, out of hyperbole. You really you really went on a mission. You 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 got a lot of miles in on your on your shoes there, and and took a lot of steps around the world. Took a lot of flights. You're not just making this claim in a Facebook post typed in all capitals with triple commas and stuff. You, yeah, really, you got a lot of research behind this, right? Yeah, huh? It's actually one of the things that was really shocking to me was to realize that this isn't like. The, the evidence that depression is being driven up by some of the some crucial facts, specific factors in the way we're living, isn't some like wacky marginal position. This is a position of the leading medical bodies in the world, the World Health Organization, the, lead, the leading doctor at the United Nations. Um, so this isn't some kind of trivial thing. And I think it's, it's, it's a slightly weird thing, isn't it? Because it, it doesn't take long for you to explain this to people to see how much it relates to their own lives, right? So everyone listening to your show knows that they have natural 
physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. You need to have meaningful values that guide you through life. And our culture is good at loads of things. I'm glad to be alive today. I like dentistry and Netflix and Kylie, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs for people. And that can sound a bit fancy and a bit abstract. So I'll give you a very specific example, um, one that's very relevant to Australia. There's an amazing Australian called Professor Hugh Mackay who's done really good work on this. So we are the loneliest society that has ever been, right? There's a study, Australia and Britain are just behind the US. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. In fact, half of all Americans asked how many people know you well say nobody, right? And I remember I spent a lot of time talking with uh, an amazing man, Professor John Cassiopo, who was the leading expert in the world. He was at the University of Chicago. And he said to me, why are we alive? Why do we exist? You, me, and everyone listening to your show, right? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really fucking good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down, but they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating, right? So just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. If you think about where we evolved, the way we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to die. You were in terrible, terrible danger, right? Those are the impulses we have. But we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes, to think that we can go it alone, right? And if you ever separate a bee from its hive and look at what happens, it just goes crazy, right? It starts flying around really chaotically, put a bee in a jar, it will just go mad, right? And there's a similar thing happening with us. This loneliness is a massive drive. We know that loneliness has massively increased. There's loads of evidence. We know that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. There's loads of evidence for that. This is one of the key factors that's, that's, that's playing out. Now, that's not a problem in your brain. That can lead to problems in your brain that make it somewhat harder to get out. And I go through that in the book. But, but that, that's something very obvious, which everyone can see playing around in someone they know. And so I started to ask myself, well, what is the solution to that, right? Because the solution to that clearly is not just to drug someone. The drug might give them some relief and that has some value, but that's, that's it's, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's like I always think when you see these Americans who, I remember when I first lived in the US, being offered, you've had this experience, being offered an indigestion pill while I was eating. And, um, <laughs> and they don't exist in Britain. I don't think they exist in Australia, do they? Or they're like some specialist thing. If you had some like medical problem yeah. with indigestion. No, they, but they sell them. Well, I lived in America for about 10 years. And yeah, you can buy them over the counter in packs of 500. All right. They're these massive, it's a massive jar that's probably, it looks like, um, like a shake and bake pancake mix jar, uh, <laughs> uh, bottle. It looks like that. And there's 500 of these things in there. So rather than, hey, maybe you don't want to eat three hot dogs with mustard and chili sauce, it's like, eat your three hot dogs, but between each one, neck some of these and it'll be all right. And that's the thing you want to say to people, right? I remember when I was offered this indigestion pill in this really pompous British way, I said, oh no, but you don't want to get rid of your feeling of indigestion. Indigestion is a meaningful signal, right? Indigestion is telling your body that you're eating too fast, right? You need to listen to the signal and slow down. 
And in a similar way, of course, I'm not comparing depression and digestion. Digestion is uncomfortable. Depression is worst thing that's ever happened to me. But depression is a signal, right? It's telling us something. It's telling us something has gone wrong. And instead of trying to just uh, pathologize the signal by saying either it's just a problem in your brain or that you're just weak or crazy or whatever bullshit people say, what we need to do is listen to that signal. What is it telling us, right? And so I was thinking about this in very practical ways about solutions. One of the heroes of my book is this totally amazing man called Dr. Sam Everington, who acted on this insight, right? So Sam is a GP in East London, where I lived for a long time, a poor part of East London. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with just crippling depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks there is some role for chemical antidepressants, but he could also see, firstly, most of the people he was giving them to did become depressed again. And secondly, they were depressed for perfectly good reasons, like, for example, loneliness. So Sam decided to, to try an experiment. One day, a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know pretty well later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. We'll meet at Dog Shit Alley. I'm going to come too because I've been quite anxious. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And we're going to find something to do together. It's called social prescribing, prescribing something to take part in a group. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? She had barely left her house in years. But the group started talking and they're like, what can we do together? And they thought, actually, we could make Dog Shit Alley into a garden, right? So they started to teach themselves gardening. In a city, East London people like me, they knew nothing about gardening, right? They started to read books, they started to look on YouTube, and then they started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. And even more than that, though, they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. They started to look at, one of them didn't turn up. They go and look, are you okay? They started to solve each other's problems because that's what we do when we're a tribe, right? And the way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a really similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants, I think for a really obvious reason, right? It was dealing with some of the reasons why these people were depressed and anxious in the first place. And this is something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. The best solutions to depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel so shit in the first place. It's an extraordinary point. I remember the doctor that first diagnosed me, He, the guy that first put me on meds, he was very, very clear to point out, look, you know, the meds like say you're a sports car, the meds are one wheel of the sports car. Sports car needs four wheels, five wheels if you count the steering wheel. The meds are one wheel, all right? It's not like these are going to take everything away. You've got to do the other things, diet and exercise, you know, doing something meaningful, making sure you move your body, you know, having something to do and looking after your sleep. Things, All those sorts of other things have to come into it. You can't just take the drug and expect it to get better. I should just like point out, like we're not – Let's let's get some boundaries and definitions about what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking. We're not talking about complex mental health issues such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or things like that. We're talking about anxiety and depression, the the kind of fairly uh, widely experienced in our community, um, fairly widely experienced issues that people are dealing with. Not the stuff that really kind of messes with your perception of reality, right? There's slightly more complicated points we made about that, which is so there's with all mental health problems, there's three kinds of cause, right? 
there's biological causes like your genes, other physical things that happen. There's psychological causes, which is how you think about yourself, your place in the world. And then there's social causes, which are things like loneliness, you know, the way we live together, right? And with all mental health problems, all three of those play out to some degree. But obviously, it's massively varying, right? So there's obviously, let's think about something like dementia, right? Dementia has an obviously an extremely heavy biological component. It is, in fact, a physical degeneration of your brain, right? But even with dementia, if you have very strong social connections, if you speak another language, if you have um, a higher level of positivity, dementia develops much more slowly, right? There's lots of good research on this. So even something that's so obviously heavily biological as dementia has these really significant psychological and social elements. So let's think about schizophrenia, right? Schizophrenia has a hugely heavy biological component, obviously, right? And there's really good research on this. But with schizophrenia, loneliness makes schizophrenia worse. And actually, if you look at the seven factors that I write about in Lost Connections, many of them would make even something as heavily biological as schizophrenia worse. Now, that's not to say these are not the main drivers of schizophrenia, but, but it helps you to understand that there's something playing out with all these things. And it used to be thought there were two kinds of depression, right? Uh, they used to, uh, the terms they used to use were, um, they used to think there was endogenous depression, which is like, so there's just something gone wrong in your brain. And they used to think it was something called exogenous depression, which is reaction to bad things happening in your life. But actually, when this was studied more, what they found is, when they, look, they looked at groups of people who'd been diagnosed with these different kinds of depression, and they actually found they'd all had the same amount of bad shit happening to them, right? So actually, it, there's still a debate about this, but if there is any what's called purely endogenous depression, so it's just something going on in your brain, that's like a negligibly tiny amount. If it exists at all, and experts are divided on this, but they pretty much agree if it exists, it's a really, really small number of people. Most of what's going on are these, these, these wider factors, although of course biology plays a really important role. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad we, I'm glad we saw it. I wouldn't want to give people the wrong idea um, that, you know, if you are experiencing complex mental health issues that y- even though we, what we talked about uh, just, you know, a few minutes ago, like you need to get to a doctor. Um, gardening may be good, but you need to get to a doctor. <laughs> interesting to me, actually, and I'm, I'm, no one's been able to explain this to me, but I think it's really interesting. Australians, the whole world of Australian psychiatry is much better at explaining these complex... It's interesting. What your doctor told you would be surprising in the United States and is not at all surprising in Australia. Um, I was speaking to... I was in Australia a few months ago and I was speaking to... A bit more than that now. uh, In September, I think. And um, I was speaking to some people, child psychiatrists who work on children who've been diagnosed with attention problems. And again, they had a much more sophisticated understanding of the complex causes the mixture of causes. So I think Australia, I mean, everywhere in the world, I would urge people to go to their doctor if they have mental health problems. But I think particularly in Australia, there's a more sophisticated understanding. There's a lot that still needs to change in Australia and a lot more that still needs to be done. And it's also worth saying, the solutions don't just lie in the medical system, right? And think about car accidents, right? Yeah. Biggest source of death in our societies. Obviously, when people are mangled in car wrecks, they go to the emergency room and they get really good treatment and those doctors are heroes, right? And the nurse is there. But most of what we do to deal with that problem, we don't deal with in the emergency room. We have driving tests and seatbelts and airbags, and we arrest speeders and we arrest people who drive when they're drunk, right? Yeah, yeah. Because driving is a social thing, we have social solutions to deal with it, right? And partly what I argue in my book, Lost Connections, I think the evidence is really clear, is depression is like that. There are lots of factors in the way we're working that are driving up depression. For example, the way people spend most of their time at work 
There's a lot of evidence I can talk about that more if you want. That's something we can deal with collectively together. So I don't think it's just about, obviously, when it gets to the point that someone is so acutely depressed, of course, then they should seek medical help. But we should also be changing the society so that uh, in very practical ways, that based on the science that I've seen people do in different countries, so they don't, we don't get to the point where so many people feel like shit in the first place, right? There's loads of things we could have done years ago that would have meant that loads of people who are depressed now wouldn't have been if we, if, it, if, if we were living in a slightly different way. You mentioned a woman before, one of the people you met who stayed and, you know, didn't leave her house for a long time and, um, mm. you know, was, you know, and, and this is something that, you know, I'm sure people can relate to because you write about it and I'd like you to kind of explain upon it, um, the idea of settling into the pain, which I certainly, you know, as someone who would often not leave the house for, you know, th- three days at a time, I, I certainly know about it. Like, it's easier to stay inside and it's easier to define myself, you know, by, I don't know, I'm safe as long as I don't go out the front door. But, you know, kind of not understanding. You'll have to excuse. That's that's my dog, Frank, barking at the magpies who are just getting up this morning. <laughs> Um, um, the idea of people that maybe don't want to go and seek help because, uh, oh, no, things are just fine as long as I don't leave the house. or No, think it starts worse than that. Things are fine as long as I don't see this particular person or relative. Things are fine as long as I don't see that person at work. Things are fine as long as I don't go to work. Things are fine as long as I don't leave the house. Oops-a-daisy, then you're fucked. You know, it just kind of escalates. But people settle into that. And, and you talk a lot about that, which I, I was really interested in. I was wondering if you might be able to expand upon that a little. There was someone I... You've gone to a really important um, question. There was someone I, I went to interview. It really helped me to think about this differently. And it really challenged something in me, actually. So he's a guy called um, Dr. Derek Summerfield. He's a South African psychiatrist. And I went to interview him. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they introduced chemical antidepressants in Cambodia for the first time for the people there. And the local Cambodian doctors were like, well, what are they? What are antidepressants? So he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? thought they were going to talk about some kind of like herbal remedy, right? Like St. John's wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. A landmine left over by the American invasion of Southeast Asia. And so they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields after a little while, right? But obviously, I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic to go back and work in the field where you got blown up. And Apparently, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, didn't want to leave, wanted to just be alone, like you're describing, shut away. It's classic depression, right? So they said to Derek, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, right? It had causes. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was fucking him up. So... They bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's an individual problem primarily in the person's brain, that sounds like a a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, like we were saying before, the World Health Organization, has been telling us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious... You're not weak. You're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love, help and support to get those needs met. Think about it that way. All those years that I had been depressed, I thought of it as a personal failing, as a problem with me. 
either a problem in my biology or a failure in my character or that I was doing something wrong, right? And I remember after I spoke to Derek, going and sitting down, actually met him in a pub, and I remember just him leaving and just sitting in this pub and thinking, oh, I'm actually, this is a, in a sense, that the, the main thing I would want to say to depressed and anxious people in the position that you're in is, your pain makes sense, right? You feel these ways for a reason. I want to hear what those reasons are. We'll figure them out together because usually when you're depressed, it's not clear to you what those, what those causes are. And together we'll find solutions, right? And some of those things can't be solved by isolated individuals and their friends. Some of them have to be solved at a social level, but a lot, some of them can be solved. So you've got different levels of solutions, right? But to me, that's, that's a very different way of framing the whole problem, right? It's a very different way of thinking about it. So in a way, the last third of my book, Lost Connections, is where I'm asking, okay, what's the cow for the things that are making us feel like shit, right? The we, it's probably a good time we talk about this because you mentioned antidepressants and you know that that's an interesting case study you know a country that's never had them and then suddenly somewhere in a boardroom some pharmacy company goes there's a market we haven't expanded into yet send some people down there and tell the doctors why they need us um, <laughs> you know when they haven't you know before that which is which is kind of interesting but it is a tricky subject. But I think it's important for us to talk about it uh, for, you know, as you know, I mentioned to you, but, you know, and people that listen to the show know I've been on meds, I've been off meds, I've been on apparently all of the meds, uh, <laughs> I was on antipsychotics for a while, uh, and now I'm off meds at the moment. And I've found that very, very helpful. I found those meds to be really useful to give me the support structures that I needed to help my brain learn to move in different ways. And then slowly, slowly, the problems that I was taking the meds for became low enough that they dipped below the side effects of those meds. And so that's when me and my doctors decided, let's let's start going off. And it took about nine months. So I, I tell people every day, and I know you do too, do not stop taking your meds without talking to your doctor. I do not do it. It took it took a long time for me to get better. I wouldn't have got it better without them. That's the promise. Um, but uh, where where are you on meds, Johan? So I think you, you're speaking at it at the right level of complexity, right? Which is we have to acknowledge uh, a complex range of things. So, and I'm not talking about antipsychotics, so I'm talking about and chemical antidepressants. Yeah, antipsychotics are a thing, and I haven't looked into a great deal of detail. My instinct is that you, you're right. I haven't looked into that in great detail, like I have with antidepressants. So I guess there's a few things that, to me, tell you the essential core of the argument about antidepressants, right, chemical antidepressants. First is, depression is generally measured by something called the Hamilton scale, right? I've always felt really sorry for whoever Hamilton was that really remember him by how <laughs> miserable we all are. Anyway, um, the Hamilton scale, to give you a sense of it, goes from one where you would be dancing around in ecstasy, maybe on ecstasy, to 51 where you would be acutely suicidal, right? And um, to give you a sense of movement on the Hamilton scale, if you improve your sleep patterns, you'll gain six points on the Hamilton scale. And if your sleep patterns really deteriorate, like when you have a baby, you'll go six points the other way on average, right? So a great guy called Professor Irving Kirsch, who's the leading expert at Harvard Medical School, got hold of all the studies that look at chemical antidepressants, including the ones the drug companies didn't put in the public domain, didn't publish, right? And what that showed, what he, what he discovered was, on average, over time, chemical antidepressants will move you 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale, right? It's about a third of what improving your sleep patterns are. It's important to say a few things. Firstly, that's an average. Some people will get much more, like I initially got much more. Some people will get much less. Over time, I got less. Um, it's also worth saying 1.8 points ain't nothing, right? Like if you're acutely suicidal, 1.8 points could be the thing that 
takes you down off the ledge, it's equally worth saying 1.8 points to Hamilton scale on average is not solving the problem for most people. And we can see that around us, right? For the last 30 years, every year in Australia, there's been a massive increase in antidepressant prescription. And every year, depression has continued to rise. Now, it's not rising because of the antidepressants. The antidepressants are taking the edge off a bit. But there's something missing in that picture, right? What's missing in that picture is what's actually causing depression and anxiety and how we can actually solve those causes, right? So that's one thing I think is worth knowing. The other thing is, the other most important piece of research, in fact, the single most important piece of research, I think, on chemical antidepressants is something called the STAR-D trial. Really simple. Scientists follow people who go to the doctor saying, I'm depressed and I need help. And they follow them over a long period of time to see who gets better, right? And what they found is most people given chemical antidepressants do become depressed again, right? Doesn't mean they get no help, but it does mean, you know, for most people, it's not enough, right, to lift them over the threshold. So, Again, I think this is kind of obvious. I'm surprised that some people find these things controversial because they're just so obvious, right? I mean, you look around you, more, more, there are loads more people depressed. But I also think you, you alluded to a really important thing, which is discussed less, which is so there's this real benefit, which is smaller than you'd think, but real, and for some people, life-saving. Um, and there's really horrendous side effects for a lot of people. So I put on a huge amount of weight, like 70% of men who take these drugs, affected my sexual functioning, not all the time, but some of the time, and made me sleep a huge amount. So I think we have to have a complex discussion. There is some benefit for some people. It doesn't solve the problem for most people, sadly, uh, because it doesn't deal with the actual reasons why people are depressed. And there are big side effects that for some people will outweigh even the modest positive effects. So I think that's the kind of um, complex picture, you're absolutely right to say, anyone who wants to cut back, you should never cut back abruptly. You can have really severe withdrawal effects and you can lose 1.8 points on a Hamilton scale on average, which could be really awful for you. But equally, we have to have a much more sophisticated conversation about depression than are you in favour of drugs or are you against drugs, right? Because we've been having that argument for 30 years and it's not dealt with the actual heart of the problem, which is why do so many people feel like shit? What can we actually do to stop this rising and, in fact, to reverse this this trend? And really, those to me are the most important questions. Uh, it's it's similar, and you know, it might be the way of like when it comes to broken legs. Are you a fan of putting the leg in a cast, or are you a fan of just wobbling around? Like you're probably going to want to put it in a cast, you know. <laughs> like so, if that's a really you know, if in an acute situation, in my opinion, you're going to need something to help you. It depends what you mean by an acute situation, doesn't it? I think you're right that I mean. I don't know enough about the science of plaster casts, but I'm pretty sure like 100% of people get helped by plaster casts. Yeah. I don't think there are any side effects. Maybe some people are allergic to plaster or something. Yeah. So I think that analogy slightly overstates it because there are, everyone gets helped by plaster casts and there's no side effects. Well, your, your mobility is reduced. You may not be able to work. It might affect your sexual function. You might put on weight because uh, you can't move around as much as you used to. Might be some plaster cast fetishists out there who are like... Hey man, everyone's got their something, Johan. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think... I, I think um, there's a role for chemical interventions. There are real biological components to all mental health problems. There's a role for chemical interventions. Uh, and sometimes they can be life-saving. Other times they can be actively harmful. It, we need to have a complex approach to it. We need to be honest with people about the complexity. The thing I object to is not the drugs, right? And like I say, they've got some value. It's limited, but it's real. The thing I object to is the story that's often given with the drugs. Think about what my doctor told me. My doctor told me, you have this problem because of a problem in your brain. And what that does 
is it cuts people off from understanding the, com- the real complexity of the problem and from finding real solutions, right? So I'll give you an example in my own case. I find it a bit difficult to talk about, but I've been trying to make myself do it in interviews. So there's this thing that I discovered, uh, I learned about, it's obviously I didn't make the scientific discovery, it's amazing scientists did this, but I learned about for the book. It was quite difficult. And it was like, okay, I'll tell you the story of how it was discovered. And for a minute, you're going to think, why is he telling me this? It's got nothing to do with depression, but it actually led to this incredible breakthrough in depression that I think we can only understand if we understand how it was discovered. So in the mid-1980s, a doctor called Dr. Vincent Felitti, who I got to know later, in San Diego, in California, was given a quite difficult task. He was approached by Kaiser Permanente, who were the big not-for-profit medical provider in California, and they said, look, we've got a really big problem here. Every year, obesity was getting worse, and they were trying all sorts of things, like giving people diet plans, and nothing was making a bit of difference, and it was causing all, it was costing them a fortune, obviously it's terrible for people's health. So they gave him quite a big budget, and he said, go away and figure out what would genuinely solve this problem, right? So he goes away, and he starts to work with 250 severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds, so very severe obesity, people who tried every other kind of solution, nothing had worked. And he's interviewing these people, and one day he has what seems like it actually is in some ways a really stupid idea. He asked himself, what would happen if really obese people literally just stopped eating? And I gave them like vitamin shots so they didn't get like scurvy or whatever. Would they just burn through the fat stores in their bodies and start to lose weight? So obviously with a shitload of medical supervision, they started to do this. And in crazily, in one sense, it appeared to work. So there's a woman who I'm going to call Susan. That's not her real name. It's to protect her medical confidentiality, who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. It's like, whoa, everyone's celebrating. They can't believe it. It's happy days, right? And then something happened that no one expected. One day, Susan cracked, went to KFC, starts obsessively eating, and quite soon she's back, not quite where she was, but at a dangerous weight, right? And Dr. Felitti calls her in and he's like, Susan, what happened? And she looks down and she's like, I don't know. I don't know. So it's asking her questions. He says, well, tell me about the day you cracked. Did anything happen that day that didn't happen on other days? I turn out saying had happened that day. Saying actually that it never happened to Susan. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her, not in like an awful predatory way, in quite a nice way, but she felt really freaked out and she'd gone off to KFC or whatever it was. And that's when Dr. Felitti asked, I think it was the next session he asked her, something, again, it never occurred to him to ask her. He said, when did you start to put on weight? In her case, it was, um, I think it was when she was 11. And he said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were nine, didn't happen when you were 14, anything that, that year? And again, she looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started raping me. Oh. Dr. Felitti began to interview everyone in the program, and he discovered Ooh. that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused, right? Now, that is so much higher than the general population. It's like, there's something going on here, but what could it be? And Susan explained it to him. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. Dr. Felitti realized this thing that seems so irrational and obviously is really bad for your health, obesity was for these people actually performing a really important function. It was protecting them from sexual attention, right? And so Dr. Felitti started to think about this and he's like, okay, but this is a small group. He's making a big claim. He's like, this is really weird. And it, it goes to, he decides he needs to do a much bigger study to draw any big conclusions. So he goes to the Center for Disease Control, who is one of the biggest bodies that fund medical research in the whole world. And he gets a massive grant to do a really big study. Everyone who came for healthcare to Kaiser Permanente for a whole year in San Diego, didn't matter whether they came with a headache, broken leg, 
schizophrenia, anything, was given two questionnaires. First questionnaire said, did you have any of these problems when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, extreme cruelty, neglect. And then it asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? And at first it was just going to say obesity. And at the last minute, they added a load of other stuff, suicide attempts, depression, addiction. And when the figures were added up, at first the Centre for Disease Control thought there'd, there'd been some mistake. Because for every, the figures were just so crazy. For every category of childhood trauma that you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed or addicted. But when you got into the multiple figures, it was like insane. If you had experienced six of those categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. I mean, that's just injecting drug addiction problem. You don't get figures like that very often in science, right? Yeah. The way Dr. Robert Ander, who's one of the scientists who worked on it, said, put it to me was, it made him realize he had to stop. When you see someone who's doing something that seems so irrational, like obesity or addiction or depression, you need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you, right? But I remember when I went to go and see Dr. Felitti first time in San Diego, right? So if you met him, you'd really like him, right? He's a lovely good, decent man who's done this amazing work. I felt unbelievably angry when I was talking to him. And I remember actually leaving and being and like shaking with anger. I was like, why am I so angry with this like lovely old man who's done this amazing heroic work? And it made me realize something about why I had been so committed to this. So I was told this story, oh, it's just a problem in your brain. And I'm not thick, right? At some level I knew I, it can't be that this is just a problem in people's brains because why would it be rising so much? So our brains haven't evolved in the last 30 years, right? But So when I was a child, I had um, I'd experienced some very extreme acts from uh, an adult in my life. And I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to... I didn't want to think that had any power over me now. I don't, don't want to think about it at all. But one of the reasons I'm really glad I thought about it is because what Dr. Felitti discovered next, and I think it goes exactly to the heart of what we're talking about, about the problem with telling this only a biological story. So if people had indicated on this form that they'd experienced some form of childhood trauma, their GP was told, don't call them in, but next time they come in with a problem, say to them something like this, they were given a little script, and it's saying like, I see that you indicated on this form that you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people said, no, don't want to talk about it. But 60% of people did want to talk about it. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. Uh, and then it was randomly assigned. Some of them were told, you can go see a therapist and talk about it more if you want. And what was incredible was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry, this should never happen to you. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who referred to a therapist an even bigger fall. And, and this fits with a whole bigger thing that we know, which is it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma and giving people a safe space to talk about that trauma and release their shame is an antidepressant. I think anything that, that anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. Think about the principle of the cow, right? For some people that will be drugs, but there needs to be a much bigger menu of options, right? And what that, I don't want to be simplistic about this, even if my doctor had told me a more complex story, I'm not sure I would have been able to take it on at that time. But by telling people misleadingly simplistic stories about their pain, 
we cut them off from a deeper understanding of what's really going on. And that can cut them off from finding more meaningful solutions. So think about someone who's been sexually abused and is has real problems coping in the world as a result. Saying to them, oh, you've just got a problem in your brain and the solution is just to drug yourself, that is not helpful. Right now, they may get some benefit from chemical antidepressants and there's a case in some instances of doing that. But you can see what I mean, can't you? This is too yeah. reductive a way of human thinking. Well, Johan, I've got to say thank you very much for, for sharing for sharing mm. that personal insight. You know, it's always interesting to read work like this, but when it comes from a a place of the author deeply wanting to know their own answers. I don't know. I, I guess I feel I, I, I relate to it. That was part one of my chat with Johan Hari. You can find him on Twitter at johanhari101 or go to his website, thelostconnections.com. The thrilling conclusion of that conversation will be with you on Wednesday, Australia time. I want to say a massive thanks to Hermione from Bloomsbury Publishing for helping me coordinate a time zone nightmare to get a conversation there with uh, Johan as well. She worked in conjunction with Rachel Barrett, my uh, show producer, who did the juggling of, of all the... Uh, the time zones and where they made it work. It was amazing. Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider for the epic music, Andy Ma for the audio production and you for listening. Let me know what you think of the two-part format. Does it fit your commute? Does it fit your workout? I'd love to know. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'll see you in a couple of days with part two of my chat with Johan Hari. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 